Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi, I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Many investors listening to this podcast are passionate about trading shares. Many others are keen to get started but find that challenge of choosing what to buy pretty daunting. The question of how to value a company and how to analyse a company is a really tricky one and we throw around these acronyms like PE and EPS to make it sound very technical and confusing, which doesn't really help anybody, right, particularly when you're starting. But it's a brave move to invest in a share when you're not sure whether or not it's good value. You might like a company, but are you paying too much? It's the most difficult question for so many people. So to help understand the fundamentals of valuing a company and therefore its shares, I'm speaking with Marissa Rossi of Milford Asset Management. Marissa has nearly two decades of experience in share markets. She was formerly the head of research at UBS Asset Management and is now a senior analyst at Milford. So she's a true professional when it comes to understanding what a share and what a company might be worth. Marissa, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So Marissa, we use this term fundamental analysis as opposed to technical analysis, which is basically looking at prices and trying to work out where they're going without worrying too much about the company underneath it. Can you give us a bit of an idea of how fundamental analysis works? Absolutely. Fundamental investors value a company really much the same way as everyday people evaluate any investment opportunity in their lives. So we need to understand the business, how the cash flows in and out today, and most importantly, how we think that will change over time. So really, fundamental investing is about asking the right questions and doing the work to find the answers. Um, I thought for the purposes of our chat today that maybe we could talk about create a hypothetical example. So our example is that your brother, Gemma, do you have a brother? I do have a brother, but he has Down syndrome. It's really going to complicate the example. Let's say I have a brother who doesn't have Down syndrome. It's a hypothetical brother. Hypothetical brother, yes. hypothetical example. Yes. Your (laughs) hypothetical brother has asked you to buy into a coffee shop with him. Mm Mm-hmm. You'll contribute half the purchase price Mm -hmm. and you'll receive half the profits. Mm -hmm. He will run the business though. Okay. So... The starting point, I think, for us to decide whether, well, really, whether this is a good investment, but more importantly, what we're going to pay for this investment is to look at the financial accounts of the cafe. So that will tell us how profitable the business is today. Just as us equity analysts look at published financial statements of listed companies to assess how profitable a business is. But more importantly than how profitable it is today is our understanding of how we think profitability will change over time. So uh, a real-life example of that might be I often see Alan Kohler on ABC News talking about how Commonwealth Bank reported an $8.5 billion profit, Mm. but the share price fell. Um, So if you think that through, reported results are by definition backward-looking. They're telling us how the company did over the past 12 months. Equity markets don't look backwards. Equity markets look forward. So analysts are always thinking about what the – profit the business can earn next year and the year after that. Investors will pay more for a stock that has very strong growth potential and typically less for one that operates in a mature industry where the business is stable or maybe even declining. So some examples of that would be if you think about Fairfax's share price at the start of the 2000s when they were still, they still had a pretty big print publishing business back in those days. But the equity market had this sneaking suspicion that they would sell less papers over time, and that that turned out to be true. 
Um, an inverse example would be Afterpay at the moment, which has a very, very rapid growth profile and investors are paid for a given level of earnings. Investors are prepared to pay much more for that. The other thing the equity market's prepared to pay more for, so firstly, we like stocks that grow, or when I say we like, we're prepared to pay more for stocks that grow. Secondly, we're prepared to pay more for stocks that have stable earnings rather than volatile earnings. So when we get these financial accounts for our cafe, hopefully we've got maybe five years of history and we, we can look back at the profitability of the business over the past five years. So has it swung from massive profits into, into massive losses or have the profits been relatively consistent and stable? So if we apply that to the equity market, we can think about a stock that has volatile earnings, maybe like a mining company. BHP has extremely volatile earnings because they're uh, revenue is determined by volatile commodity prices, which are unpredictable and outside the company's control. Um, Qantas has volatile input prices because oil is likewise a globally traded commodity. It's unpredictable and they can't control that. Um, compared to, say, a healthcare company or a supermarket where there's a sort of certain predictability and stability around those earnings. So I think back to our coffee shop. Mm. If we could only answer two questions, and those two questions were going to help us understand what we were prepared to pay for this business, they'd surely be, what revenue do you think we can make from selling coffee? And how do we think that will change over time? That's, and you've raised so many different things that people want to think about as it relates to a company. Well, coming back to those two things is so important, right? So basically how much money you're making now. Correct. And is it going to change? Yep. And how is it likely to change? One thing that I find fascinating in terms of how people, uh, what people are willing to pay, not necessarily how they value a company, but what they're willing to pay is very much about how they feel it's going to change in the future. Correct. But you wonder how much deep analysis goes into that and how much of it is just thematic or something they've read in the paper. Oh, definitely. And perhaps online rather than in the paper. Totally. And I think even in... um I think in Australia, we have a bit of a familiarity premium. So investors are prepared to pay more for a stock like Woolworths because that's a name they know than, um, you know, a small pharmaceutical biotech company that they've never heard of. So I think there are lots of reasons. There are lots of things that go into determining what an investor is prepared to pay for a given stock. So looking at that then, how do you... Are there any basic rules of thumb or guides you can use to go, okay, this would be a reasonable valuation for anything? So we look at forward PEs, for example, Mm. get you to explain what that is Mm. in a second. If you go, the average market PE is this. So that's sort of what we're happy to pay for the average stock. Yep. Um, But huge amounts of volatility around that and huge amounts of variation around that. So what what would be a rule of thumb, I guess, or a guide? And then you can kind of work out how far away from that perhaps something yes, is. Yes, that is a very tricky question and I'm not sure there's a simple answer. Um, so so to, to take a step back, the um, PE is what we refer to as the price earnings ratio, which is simplistically a stock share price divided by its earnings per share. And taking a step further back again, earnings per share is the profit that a company makes divided by the number of shares on issue. So in our coffee shop example, Mm. if we're making $100,000 a year and we have two shareholders, then our EPS is $50,000. Right. Okay. So then what we're prepared to pay for our coffee shop is a multiple of that. Interesting. And then you would come to – so if I go back to that rule of thumb idea – 
if every single coffee shop in a particular area, you, people pay a million dollars for it, right? Yep. That's the average price yep. of the coffee shop in the area. Yes. You would then want to be looking at the PE of those coffee shops to go, are all coffee shops in this area massively overvalued or undervalued? Correct. Is that one way of looking at it? Definitely. And then secondly, do we think our coffee shop is better or is of a higher or a lower quality than the average coffee shop in the area? And then also, does it have more potential or less potential? Correct. Is it on a main road? Is it? Correct. And more important than that, Gemma, is it on a main road? And are there, is the population or the foot traffic that walk past our cafe, is it growing or declining? Mm. Because it's not just about, like I said, the way the equity market values things is not about what it earns today. Mm. It's about how we think it will change. So what we're prepared to pay for our coffee shop, we might be prepared to pay more if there's a massive residential apartment block under development two blocks away mm. because there's gro- we know that there's growth in our foot traffic and hopefully growth in our sales of coffee. The fact that there are... 14 other coffee shops <laughs> on the block mm. maybe reduces the price we're prepared to pay because we have to share our customer base with all of our competitors. And in addition, I mean, competition changes everything, right? I mean, competition means we don't have pricing power. We can't be charging $5.50 for our skim cappuccino <laughs> if everybody else is charging three fifty. Yeah. And we can't put our price up year after year. Because we really, we have to maintain, we have to be competitive with all of our competitors. In addition, our handsome and skillful barista is going to get offers from all of our competing coffee shops to come and work for them. So we're going to have to pay him more. So our cost base is going to be higher. Mm. We might have to source a fancier bean. So more expenses in that respect. And also, I mean, we can't let things get shabby. We're going to have to spend more on CapEx or capital expenditure. Decor. I like exactly. to call it decor. Decor. Yep. Mm. To keep our, you know, the exposed timber and the greenery looking good. <laughs> Depending on where you live, all of this may be very familiar or not familiar at all, but I have a feeling it's probably quite familiar in pretty much everywhere in Australia now, the exposed timber and the greenery. Lovely. And a bit of subway tile. Very important Correct. to have your subway tile. Subway tile. Mm. Quite the fan. Um, okay. So then the cafe business is a brilliant example because most people have been to cafes. They know what the product is that's for sale. They have a loose idea of, well, actually, most people have a pretty good idea of what you should charge or how much they're willing to pay for coffee. So it's actually a pretty straightforward business model for the average person to assess. Brilliant example in that respect. What about people who come to market uh, look at the shares on offer, so they want to invest, they look at the shares on offer and go, I know absolutely nothing about that market. And there's a couple of really good ex- – actually, there's so many good examples. People are really happy to pay for Woolworths because they do understand supermarkets, right? Most of us do go to a supermarket occasionally. However, mining companies, very few of us have been inside a mine, maybe more in Australia than in other countries. CSL is an interesting company. Very few of us have real exposure to those kinds of businesses or have uh, real expertise in them. So if you don't have expertise in an industry, how do you understand where a business fits inside that industry? Honestly, that's very tricky. I um, I mean, so what you could do, if, if, if you had no expertise in the industry and no way of gaining that expertise, then I think your your starting point has to be historical financials. So looking at what is the what is the profitability of the business? What has it been over five years? Has it grown? Has it been volatile? What's been happening to the expense lines? Have they been volatile? Um, and also, very importantly, what returns is this business making? Because 
the return a business makes determines how much capital it needs to grow and and how much how profitable that growth can be. So I, I asked my children this question the other day, is $100 a good return on your investment? Oh, what was their response? How old are your kids, by the way? The 10-year-old said, it depends how much you invest. Oh, good answer. Impressive. Mm. Yep. Um, but they didn't get the second part of the question, which was, how long have you invested for? Oh, yeah. So a 20-cent investment that returns $100 in five minutes is exceptional. Mm. A million-dollar investment that returns $100 over 20 years is awful. Yeah. Yeah, but they no, so they got the first part, not the second part. <laughs> That's a really good start. Yes. I mean, only ten. Right? That's pretty true. impressive. So yeah, so returns are a very important indicator. So if you had no way of learning about the industry or the management team of the business you're assessing, you would look at the last five years of historics, look at how earnings have changed, look at how the share count has changed. So back to what we were talking about previously, important not to be just looking at profits mm. because if the earnings, if the share count is doubling every year then there needs to be a lot of profit growth to offset that dilution. Can you explain that quickly? Because I think it's really important. A lot of people talk about a post-GFC high in the market, for example, but others have pointed out that given the number of capital raises over that period, it's not a fair comparison. Mm, that, yep, that's an interesting point. So basically companies raise equity to, um, to fund their business. So, we can, so a company can choose to increase their funding either by raising debt or by raising equity. If they raise equity, what that means is they are issuing new shares to either existing or new investors. They are taking in the cash that the investors pay for those shares. But the And so that funding gives them options. They can buy things to grow or they can pay down debt. Um, the downside of having that extra cash is they've got more shares. So back to our coffee shop example, if our business is earning $100,000 and initially it was just you and your hypothetical brother – with an earnings per share of $50,000 each, but now we've got three shares. So mm. our earnings per share has fallen from $50,000 to $33,000. But we've got some extra cash in to maybe buy a second coffee shop or, um, you know, upgrade our exposed timber and greenery. <laughs> Get some subway tiles. Exactly. Okay. So what do you choose to look at first? You've talked about historical earnings, which is really interesting. So many investors now are really looking to the potential of what a business can do. It's been fascinating over the last 10, 15 years, watching businesses that had not existed suddenly become absolute megaliths, right? Um, so what do you look at first? Yes. So I am definitely, I definitely consider myself a fundamental investor. So if you said to me, I had to determine how to value a share without understanding what the company did, I would, I would find that difficult. So for me, it's definitely firstly about understanding the industry that the business operates in, the company's competitive position within the industry, understanding volume and price, which together drive revenue, understanding operating expenses, revenue minus operating expenses equals profit. Um, and, and, and even beyond that, understanding governance, um, the CEO, his strategy, um, the kind of people he's putting around him to, to run the business. Okay, so let's explore some basic terminology. Revenue and profit. So you just talked about revenue mm -hmm. and you talked about profit yes. previously. What's the difference? So revenue is basically equal to, well, again, we'll use our coffee shop example, mm -hmm. the good we are selling, mm -hmm. the volume of the good we are selling multiplied by the price that we are charging for it. Right. So revenue is basically your dollar, the dollar value of your sales. Right. Profit? 
profit. So the dollar value of your sales is the money you take in, your cash receipts from your customers for selling the good that your that yours that your business sells. Your operating expenses to pay your barista and your rent and your um, cleaners at night and your Beans. waste stuff, correct? <laughs> waste removal. Um, and what's left, so revenue minus expenses, is profit. And that's what shareholders can benefit from, right? Correct. With There are some complicating factors. So, for example, if your business has taken out debt to fund the purchase of a new coffee machine, then you've got to pay interest on your debt. So that comes off as well. Also, the Australian government is going to want to charge you some tax on your profit. So revenue, less expenses, less interest, less tax gives you your profit. Then we divide it by the number of shareholders. In our coffee shop example, we've now got three, which is complicated. I think we should boot out <laughs> Go that back third. Go yeah. back to two. Yep. Um, and that gives us our earnings per share. Right. Okay. So when you look at profit... You're not, so there are certainly some people who look at revenue lines only in these sort of very high growth businesses because they're not profitable Correct. Um, we can have a chat about that later because that's quite interesting as well. But if we look at profit, do you look at profit before tax or after tax? Do you worry about one-off items? This idea that you're going to get surprised by one-off items. I work in mm. financial services. There have been a lot of one-off items. There have been a lot of one-off. There are a lot of one-off items these days. And mm. What is a one-off item? Can you give us some well, examples? Well, what is a one-off item, Gemma? <laughs> if <laughs> you don't know, we definitely a don't. a very good question. Mm. Well, a one-off item is, in a very cynical sense, it's whatever management wants to take out of the pro- underlying profit number. Right. And it seems to be overwhelmingly negative. Mm. Like you rarely get big profits that, that get pulled out of the profit <laughs> as one-off item. Right. Yes. So I do think that the, you know, that... Institutional shareholders, I think, have a real obligation to keep management accountable in that respect. I don't think we can just call out inconvenient expenses in any given year as one-offs and and talk about underlying profit as being a much bigger number. I think at the end of the day, if there's one-off expenses in every period, I think there's an argument to say they're not one-off and actually statutory profit is the best guide to really the health of a business. That's very interesting. Okay, so statutory profit. Yes. I mean, look, there are certainly cases where that's not true. So there have been recently some big changes in US tax rates for corporates. So, And that created wild gyrations in the reported profit of companies with US tax base. So yes, obviously in that case, the, the movements in reported statutory profit was not indicative of the health of the business. So yes, there is. So absolutely analysts tend to look at something which we refer to as a normalized earnings number, which we, which takes off, it takes out the things that we believe to be genuinely one-off and there are genuine one-offs. So effectively stuff we don't expect to see next year. Correct. Okay. Yeah. That's exactly right. And so if you're an investor in a company that is sort of regularly declaring these sort of one-off items, you want to understand what they are and think about whether or not they have an impact on the long-term Absolutely. The and I guess that's what I'm saying. I think just because management calls them one-off mm. doesn't mean we should take their word for it. We should think about actually what the expense is. So um, a good example of an expense which isn't one-off might be um, the cost of refinancing debt. So... That's that's not a one-off. Debt does need to be refinanced. Okay, it doesn't need to be refinanced every year, but it needs to be refinanced every five years. So let's say, okay, well, I think probably that's a cap- cost that should be capitalised and amortised over the five-year period. Um, that's probably way too technical, is it? No, no, no. So let's talk about amortisation <laughs> because that's another one. When you hear these terms, and I remember when I first started in the industry and I, I worked uh, relatively briefly for a broking firm, but it was a really interesting start to 
joining finance slash investing in general. And we would have a Monday morning morning meeting. We'd have a meeting pretty much every day before the market opened. And everyone would be throwing all these terms around and pat amortization, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I've done all this stuff at uni, but I have no idea what it means in reality. So we understand conceptually what amortization is. Can you give us an example of how it would work for Absolutely. a company? Sure. Um, so a, a good example of amortization might be if you um, pay the government for a license the casinos do this. They pay they pay the state government for a license to operate a business and the license lasts for 20 years. Right. So at the end of the 20 years, they no longer have the right to operate that business unless they pay that license value again. They have no business. Right. So that amortisation charge, which is equal to the total that they paid for the license divided by the number of years that they have the right to operate the license – that is a way of trying to make the earnings they report in any given year a sustainable earnings number. That is not inflated by the fact that one year's number is affected by this massive payment and then there's no payment for the next 19 years. <laughs> yep. So the amortisation charge is to say, actually, we sort of need to recognise the fact that this business without this payment will cease to exist. So is that different to depreciation? Not it really. The it's concept? the same. It's just that amortisation relates to intangible um, assets like mm-hmm. licences, brands, customer relationships, whereas depreciation relates to hard assets like buildings, plant and equipment. Right. Okay. That's very helpful. Goodwill, always a term that gets thrown around a fair bit, yes. usually when they go, we've written down the value of goodwill. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> so goodwill is when a company buys a business, if they pay more than the asset value, for the business, then the rest is considered to be goodwill. And the way a company, um, so that goes into the, the acquirer's books as goodwill, that is the excess that they paid for the business above and beyond the asset value of the business they bought, um, that will just sit on the accounts happily, getting tested for impairment every year, which means the auditors will sign off to say that the net present value of the cash flows being generated by that business can are at least equal to the value of the goodwill. And if that ceases to be the case, then the goodwill has to be impaired and written down. Right. Goodwill is a really interesting one because there are plenty of companies and brands where people are actually willing to pay far more than the value of the actual asset. Apple's a great example, right, where the, yep. the cost of the good is fairly minute relative to the cost of actually purchasing it, right? So the the um, the production cost versus the actual sale price is fairly dramatically different. And it's mostly brand people are paying for. The power of the brand is enormous. So if someone wanted to buy Apple as a company, they would, I imagine, pay a hell of a lot for goodwill. Absolutely. There's no question. And it has real value. Mm. And I think part of the – and intangibles are an increasingly large portion of the of the balance sheets of listed companies. And so this is um, – no doubt you've heard about sustainability and the increasing focus of the investment community around environmental social governance issues, which we refer to as ESG. And the reason why that is increasingly important and in, an increasingly important part of our analysis is because – those, are, those really are the risk factors around the value of intangibles. So the example you gave, Apple. So a massive controversy, controversy at Apple, um, maybe human rights abuses or some environmental disaster may actually damage 
Apple's brand, which means all of a sudden, and that has real implications for financial outcomes and for shareholder returns. Um, so that, that, that sort of increased emphasis around intangibles and, and the increased importance of intangibles in um, supporting share price values is why environmental social governance and sustainability is becoming a really important risk assessment. I think that's such a fascinating one. And you're absolutely right that when you think of how many huge businesses are technology-based and they have uh, – they own a customer base, right, for now. Yeah, with but no it, real hard assets. With no hard mm. assets. Facebook's such a good example, mm. right? Everyone uses Facebook. Everyone uses Facebook. Everyone uses Facebook. Uh Cambridge Analytica comes along, nobody uses Facebook for a bit and suddenly your company's worth nothing, um, which is not strictly what happened. But you can imagine there would be an example where a company like Facebook gets involved in a scandal or some kind of activity, which is beyond the pale for the average person and they just choose not to use it anymore. The cost of choosing not to use it is very low for the individual Mm -hmm. and therefore the value of the business goes from extraordinary to nothing very Correct. quickly. And the, and the cost of trying to remediate that for the company is extraordinarily expensive. So there's a negative revenue impact mm. at the same time as there's a massive uplift in costs as they, um, you know, switch to damage control mode and try to spend their way out of the problem. Yeah. So that one's absolutely fascinating. So all of these issues like intangibles, which needless to say, are quite difficult to get your head around because they're intangible, become, I think, quite live in an environment where we pay more and more for companies that don't have a lot of tangible assets. Oh, there's no question. But because we use them every day, I think people are getting better at understanding what they might be. Yeah, there's no question. The value of brands. And I mean, yes, that's absolutely true. So coming back to some of the other questions then, uh, how do you determine the quality of a company's earnings because you can look at the numbers. If you don't know a lot about the business, it's very hard to understand. Your point about CBA was fantastic, right? $8.9 billion. That sounds amazing. And the share price falls and was like, I have no idea what that was. Uh, Why? Why? What happened there? Uh, So it's quite challenging if you're not really close to it to understand what the quality is. The best example that everybody loves is Kodak, right? Where it was very, very profitable until it fell over. Mm. Yes, um, so understanding the quality of earnings, it's about lots of things. But actually, I think um, for people who are, you know, not who are not institutional shareholders, who are not like me, spending their days poring over financial statements and spreadsheets, you big nerd. Yep. I think there's a, I think there's a real common sense test actually. Mm-hmm. Um, that sometimes it's just about asking some fairly simple questions when when things don't add up. Then, or, or if something is very difficult to understand. I think um, the companies I've analysed in my career that I found the most difficult to understand, um, one example I can tell you is AWB, which is the Australian Wheat Board. Um, I tried to build a model on that company for about 12 months on and off. I just kept finding it too difficult and moving on. Um, and I think in the end, I mean, in the end, that they had you know, all sorts of difficulties and, and actually um, went under in the end. But um, I think if, if a business is really difficult to understand, then there's usually something to that. So Kodak's an interesting example where it was very easy to understand mm. and yet it collapsed entirely. Do you think people probably should have seen that one coming? 
I actually don't know the circumstances of what happened with Kodak, so I don't, I can't talk to that example specifically. It's a little bit antiquated. It's just easy for people to understand generally yeah, as an right. example because it the story is always that they focused on film, and it was always about producing film for cameras and. Even though they had the technology to create digital cameras, they they chose not to employ it because they felt that it would erode the value of their business in film. Yes. And then fell over. Yes. Uh, (laughs) So it was was one of those examples. So I imagine someone who was looking at it would have been looking at the lines going, they're making all of this money out of something that's very rapidly being... uh, Yes, eroded. Eroded Mm. and and replaced as a technology. Yes. Uh, and that's why, I mean, there's a million examples like that. So why Fairfax and, and News Corp back in the day were very reluctant to start online classified businesses mm. because they wanted to protect their monopoly in print classifieds. So usually the disruptors, the the incumbents are rarely the disruptors. They have too much to lose and too much profitability to protect. So... Um, and there are lots of examples like that. There's a lot of business theory about that. I think as an investor, keeping your eyes peeled for that kind of, I guess, attachment to existing business models that are not adapting quickly might be a bit of a red flag. And it's difficult because if you were um, Kodak and you had a big, successful, high-returning business making film for cameras – and you can see this potential disruption out of the corner of your eye, I mean, what could they have done really? They had so much to lose. You know, so so yes, in hindsight, they held on for far too long and they should have, um, they should have been the disruptor. Mm. At any cost, at least they would have owned the mm. new market despite what it would have cost them in terms of their, the incumbency of their earnings. The great irony of it is that even had they been relatively aggressive in digital photography, phones have replaced the vast majority of Correct. cameras anyway, so maybe it wouldn't have helped too much. Probably saved them for 10 years and that was it. But that's mm. nearly always the problem is that the monopolies become fragmented with the disruption. Mm. So the disruptor rarely owns the new market. They usually share the market. So, And, and often we're going from a case like, I mean, the, the um, newspaper is a cl- classic example. The, those mastheads were licensed... Um, you know, they were, they were oligopolies, but certainly there were massive barriers to entry. Whereas the online news space is as fragmented, it's infinite inventory in mm. the online space. So their reluctance to, to give up something with high barriers to entry and high returns to enter a highly competitive and low returning space, they, they didn't want to go there. With, that, with good reason, but sometimes you don't have a choice, right? You don't. I mean, the, the truth is you can either be the first mover in the disrupted, at the disrupted end of the market and at least get that first mover advantage and try to own that market the way you've owned the incumbent market, or you, you end up failing in both. Positive, yeah. <laughs> positive way of yeah. looking at things. Yeah. Um, so th- this comes really well to the next question, though. Like, how closely do you look at how quickly a company is growing? It's important to understand how quickly a company is growing um, because the the faster a company grows, simplistically, the more the market's prepared to pay for it. Um, So understanding whether a company is overvalued or undervalued is a lot about is a lot about testing your own understanding of the growth versus what the market thinks. So if if you look at a stock and you think, my goodness, that stock's on forty times earning earnings, like. 
what could the market possibly be thinking to get to that, there's one of a few scenarios are playing out here. Either the market's wrong or you're wrong. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you need to understand, you need to get your head around that. If the market's right, then they can see some growth potential that you're missing. Or if the market's wrong, then at some point the stock's going to have an almighty correction. Mm. And that as a job, as an analyst, that's your job, is to try to get to the bottom of why does the market think this stock is worth so much? And if I can't get there, then what could I be missing? That's a really good point. I think a lot of our investors also, they might like those stocks with the really great growth potential, but they're not willing to pay 40 times. Mm. They're hoping there's an almighty correction and they can buy a pretty good quality company at 20 times. Yep. Um, it doesn't always come, that correction, but they hope for it. It doesn't always come. Um, but you certainly, um, if, if you're... If your starting point is that you don't know a lot about a business, then you're taking less risk probably by owning a stock that has a PE multiple closer to the market Mm -hmm. than you are by owning a stock on 40 times. Because to justify a 40 times multiple, you need to have some pretty high conviction around the growth prospects and the barriers to entry, the ongoing, the sustainability of returns, whereas obviously less conviction is required for a... um, stock on a lower PE. The converse of that is that sometimes stocks on very low PEs are what we call value traps. <laughs> yeah. Which means that they look inexpensive. It's like, I mean, there's a million examples of this in everyday life mm. where you find something at Kmart and think, wow, I can't believe it's only five bucks. I don't really need it, but I'm just going to buy it because that's awesome. Mm. And then it, by the time you get home, it's broken. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It doesn't have. It's a value trap. Yeah. Doesn't even have five dollars no, worth of value as it, it turned out. Correct. Just you uh, overpaid. Yeah. You bought economies. yourself some landfill. Correct. That's it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> a really good example. We've all been there. We've all been there. So one thing I'd love to ask you. So you talk about forty times as a PE that's quite high. So what is the average PE that people uh, would be used to in the Australian market? Yeah. The share market is currently trading on eighteen times. In Australia, is that in Australia? Yeah, average. No, high. it's high versus okay. history. It's high. So okay. I think our um, the average PE for the market over the last ten years is fifteen times. Right. So that that I mean, simplistically, that makes an argument to say the market's expensive. Mm-hmm. But there is another factor, and that is the market pays us a four percent dividend yield, mm-hmm. whereas your term deposit is only paying you one and a half percent. So in I a, think you're probably pretty happy to get 1.5% at the moment. Exactly, a, exactly. Mm. That's probably a good outcome. Probably not happy, but you'd prefer that to the alternative in other term deposits, let's put it that way. Exactly. Mm. Um, so there is still an argument to say ec- the equity market is attractive despite it appearing optically expensive. Yeah, so that relativity is exactly. what is mattering at Everything the is relative, Gemma. <laughs> I am learning that. I am learning that. I have a terrible habit of deciding things are expensive or not expensive on abs- on an absolute basis. But I think the last uh, at least five years have taught us that relativity matters a lot. So one more question then on what you look at in terms of how you analyse a company. Assets and liabilities. Um, we don't, you know, we're talking now about intangibles in these businesses that grow very rapidly, have very limited uh, balance sheets. You know, they're not carrying assets, a lot of, yeah, yeah they're not, not carrying a lot of stuff. Mm. It's um, not so much in the way of plant and equipment and so on. So, how closely do you look at that stuff? Very closely, and I think again, the important thing about balance sheets is often how they change. Right. So, 
um, the way a balance sheet looks today, a company's got a certain level of PP&E, a certain level of intangibles. PP&E? Property, plant and equipment. Right. Um, what are their growth aspirations and what investment do they need to make to get there? Because there are examples of companies that have spectacular earnings growth. So earnings have tripled over three years. How amazing. But the balance sheet has gone up 10 times over over three years. So actually the return on invested capital has plummeted. Um, and I mean, that comes back to like my, is $100 a good return question? Um, how much do you need to spend to grow your earnings? And, and what part of the balance sheet are you investing in to grow your earnings? Right. And the liabilities one is quite interesting. Um, I remember when I first did a company director's course and they were taking us through balance sheets and all this kind of business and they used examples of (laughs) current liabilities and how directors had not realised that a liability had fallen into the current period and was due to be rolled over and the business went under. And so it's saying directors need to be held responsible for that and so on. So liabilities, how much do they matter? Particularly in a low interest rate environment, that makes it a bit different, doesn't it? Oh, I think like, I mean, understanding balance sheets is really important. Um, and, and liabilities are, you know, because li- the liabilities on your balance sheet are really what, it's a really a measure of risk. Mm-hmm. So a highly geared business um, has less of a buffer when things go wrong. We talked earlier about our coffee shop having revenue, expenses, profit. You've got to fund interest. I mean, and interest isn't one of these things that you can put off because you've had a bad year. Interest has to be paid no matter what. And at some point, um, if a company can't service its its debt requirements, that's insolvency. That's mm. when companies go under. So understanding the gearing metrics of a company's balance sheet is absolutely critical. Um, and, and the point you made about current liabilities, that's really a question about liquidity. Mm. So... A balance sheet might look strong, but if there's no cash in the bank, if there's nothing that can be liquidated at short notice to meet current liabilities, you've also got a serious problem. The example they used was a property trust. So that's what we were looking at was yeah, a property right. trust. And it's very, very difficult to sell a business, sell a, uh, an enormous building at short notice to pay a debt. And exactly. they were assuming that their debt could be rolled over and, uh, and found that was not the case. Ugly. Mm, very. Very, very, for everyone involved, and they all paid big prices as a result. Yeah. So a lot of fund managers like to talk about company visits, and it's one of the ways that they uh, talk about having sort of superior insights into how a company works, um, the quality of senior executives and company management. Do you try to factor that into your analysis? How do you try to factor it in? We do. Um, Company visits are a very important part of our process. Um, two, two types of company visits. Firstly, the type where you actually meet the CEO and the CFO and you get the opportunity to ask them about their strategy, ask them about what's going well in the business, what they're worried about, um, what their plans are for the balance sheet. Are they comfortable with the level of debt? Um, you know, what are their expansion aspirations? Um, so they're very important. But also very important are the industry meetings we do with unlisted contacts. So their competitors, their suppliers, their customers to tell us, um, you know, so yes, we're a big supplier to this particular supermarket chain and, you know, things don't seem to be going well there. Every time I meet with them, the person I just met with has resigned. Um, you know, their systems are all over the shop. 
you know, um, that, so those meetings are very insightful because you're rarely going to get a CEO who, who admits to anything like that. So um, as, you know, the thing about being a, an institutional investor is we are always outsiders. We are always looking into a business from the outside and trying to find data points that we can connect to kind of make a cohesive story so that we can make some earnings forecasts and come up with a valuation. That's really interesting. Uh, we have a friend who runs a very, very successful small business. I say small, 50 employees. It's not tiny by any stretch. Uh chatting recently and he made an observation about a listed company in Australia where they're now falling outside 30-day terms for paying his invoices. I was like, wow, that's quite an extraordinary insight. Mm. And saying, I'm really nervous about part of their franchise that they're not paying their bills on time. It's- that is concerning. And he's a very good <laughs> unlisted company contact. Yeah, yeah, it would be fantastic to him. <laughs> <laughs> I will I will let you know his details on the way out. Marissa, you and your team produce some great insights on the economy, various investment-related topics, the way you explain people, things for people to understand about markets and stocks and so on is incredibly valuable. How do people follow you and keep up to date with what you're talking about? Um, Milford has a really great website. Um, there's often videos posted there. We do blogs, the investment team. Um so, yeah, they're, they're probably the best ways to keep up with what we're doing. We're on LinkedIn, so you can follow us on LinkedIn. Always helpful. And Milford, where's the name come from? Uh, Milford is a New Zealand-based business. Um, so I'm relatively new to Milford. I've been there for three months, but it's an exceptional business. Um, they've got about $8 billion in um, assets under management and growing very strongly. Performance is exceptional, very smart, hardworking group of people. So feel very lucky to be part of that team. Oh, that's nice. Also, Milford Sound in New Zealand is just utterly, utterly beautiful. It's um, a beautiful country if you get a chance to go and visit. Uh, <laughs> strange random tip at the end of an investment <laughs> podcast. Go to New Zealand. It's beautiful. Uh, Marissa Rossi from Milford Asset Management, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Gemma. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we do hope this episode has been helpful for you on your journey to creating wealth. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future topics, this was a suggestion and a request. We love to hear them. So please just email us at yourwealth@nav.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.